It was great to uh, get away last week, but it's uh, even better to be able to be back this morning. And I love the fact that I can go away. I got asked to preach at a friend's church and, and do that and know that we've got such great staff and volunteers here. I know Chip did an amazing job. I listened to his message on Monday uh, on our pat- podcast, and so I'm grateful for that and all our people who just make things amazing each Sunday. So um, I'm, I'm also very excited to be back because we're starting this four-week series on Job, and we get to talk about, over the next four weeks, we get to talk about suffering, like Neil mentioned. And you might you know, wonder why I have such a big smile on my face. Didn't it, like, doesn't this just feel like the right time of year to talk about suffering? You know, the holidays are coming, the leaves are falling, so let's talk about suffering. Uh, 42 chapters in the book of Job in the Old Testament are devoted to this topic. Now, it's not the only place that the Bible talks about suffering or pain or sorrow or loss. Um, there's a, a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. So there's five chapters of the prophet Jeremiah writing about sorrow. There are innumerable, innumerable psalms that David writes, and he talks about just very deep, visceral experiences where he cries out to God in the midst of his darkness. But Job, very uniquely, is a wisdom a piece of wisdom literature in the Bible that's considered to be a literary work of art because of how it's structured and because of its language and the dialogue that's used and all the things that happen in it. Job deals with a very specific uh, question in the problem of pain and, and asks this, can God's justice and wisdom, can it be trusted in the facing in the face of suffering? Can God's justice and wisdom be trusted in the face of suffering? This is an ancient question, and it's not just unique to Job. There are other ancient Near Eastern uh, writings that deal with the same problem, but Job deals with this in a very unique way. And the thing that's really fascinating to me about this is that the way that Job is written, the way it's structured, uh, the context in which, which it happens and all that kind of stuff, Job may very well be the oldest written book of the Bible that we have. You may not know it, but your Bible is not broken down into chronological order. It's broken down into more of, of categories. And so Job really comes before just about everything else that happens in Scripture. So we read through the creation account, but before God ever talks to Abraham about having descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, before the nation of Israel was ever established, before the Ten Commandments come along, we have Job's story. And so what this means, the significance of this to me, is that the first thing that God really deals with is this ancient and current question that we continue to have, why do good people suffer? What's up with that? What's the deal with suffering, and can God be trusted in the midst of that? Um, Like I said earlier, the conclusion that the book of Job, it's not necessarily unique that there's ancient Near Eastern literature that talks about this, but the conclusion that Job makes is very unique. And I'm not going to tell you the answer, because if I told you now, that, that would, you know, negate the need to con- continue talking about Job, right? And so it's a four-week series, so you got to wait for that. No, I'm just kidding. It, here's the thing, and here's, you know, spoiler alert, here's, here's what you n- need to know. When it comes to this issue and it comes to this question, there's not going to be a pithy platitude that kind of unlocks the key to this and makes you understand uh, everything and all the reason that you, reasons that you've experienced pain and suffering in your life. And the only, only way that we discover the answer to this, why do good people suffer, is, is through the experience of moving through the suffering. 
And it's only until we're on the other side of it that we can look back and see maybe what God is communicating to us about how he views the world and how he deals with our lives in the face of suffering existing. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to move through the events of Job's suffering, the response of his friends, and God's response. Um, I'm excited about diving into this book and this topic because I think this is one of the primary obstacles that people feel that keep them from experiencing and believing in God. And it doesn't have to be. Suffering doesn't have to be that obstacle. How we handle our own suffering, how we walk through suffering with others, how we search for answers, and how we view God's direct response can combine to produce trust between us and God. And I'm not trying to suggest that this is easy. And this is, this is not an, an exercise that's going to be, oh, okay, now everything is, is clear and this, this makes uh, perfect sense as to why these things have happened in my life. Um, in fact, you, know, you may find the answers that the book of Job provides to be wholly unsatisfactory. Trust in the face of suffering is a difficult thing. And not just conceptually with God, but we also, I mean, it's difficult to trust each other sometimes with our pain and suffering. And so I, I submitted to you, for example, evidence uh, for this in America's Funniest Home Videos. You guys, anybody ever seen that before? Okay, so my family, my kids really like to watch uh, America's Funniest Home Videos on Sunday nights. It comes on at 7, I think. So if it's been a while, you might check it out. And in the midst of that, I mean, we like to laugh. I mean, that's, that's part of it. We, we enjoy that. In the, in the midst of, you know, all the videos and stuff, there's like the cute baby videos and there's the cute dog videos and all that kind of stuff. But the things that we laugh the hardest at as a family, and I'm perfectly fine with admitting this to you in this moment of transparency because I know it's what you find the funniest too, is when people get what? Exactly. First service knew it too. I mean, we're all the same. You know, we we know the funniest thing that happens is when people get hurt. When people bust it on the ice, that is the best thing ever. It's it's hilarious when people get hit in sensitive places on their body. Like, that's the thing. Like, that's that's the thing that wins the ten grand right at, at the end. Like, these are the great things, and the reason is because it's so great to see it when it finally has happened to somebody else. We know exactly what that feels like because it's all happened to us. <laughs> it's finally great. Like, oh, man, I'm just thankful it's not me. So we just laugh about that, and it's great to see other people in pain, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the way we spend our Sunday night. <laughs> We're all familiar with some form of pain and suffering. We've all dealt with it on some level. We've been there, and we've had those moments. Um, most of the time for those, you know, uh, people are suffering because they've done something stupid. And we, we can kind of make sense of that, right? You play stupid games, win stupid prizes. We can watch and laugh at that. And, of course, there are other things for which we suffer. Uh, you know, like, I, just be warned, yeah, this is a tough picture to see. And as some of you deal with the suffering on a daily basis, you drop the phone and you got to live through a shattered you know, screen. And, oh, the pain of not being able to read Facebook clearly but then maybe just a little bit of perspective comes along in the midst of our suffering that kind of helps us to deal with that when we consider maybe we don't have a problem knowing where our next meal is going to come from, right? Hashtag first world problem. And what about situations, though, in which you're suffering for which there is no explanation? And those are the things that really matter. It's the random chaotic events that come along that seem wholly unnecessary and no, have no reason behind it? Why do bad things happen to good people? It's still one of the primary questions asked when talking with anyone, whether you're a Christian, 
whether you're somebody seeking out Jesus or you just outright are not convinced that God even exists. When it comes to God's willingness or ability to deal with pain and suffering, this is, this is the question that we ask, and this is how the book of Job begins. So in Job chapter 1, verse 1, here's where we begin. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. In other words, if you were looking for the, a paragon of faithfulness, Job would be it. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, God uses Job as one of uh, three total examples of people who their righteousness sets them apart. Even if God was going to have to punish the whole world or all of his people, like he wouldn't punish Job because that's how righteous Job was. In fact, one of our rules uh, at this church is that no perfect people are allowed, and so Job would, like, he wouldn't be allowed. So Job couldn't come to church here, and he wouldn't make it past our bouncers, you know, that you saw as you came in this morning. Uh, Job, you know, this, this word for blameless basically means he's, he's perfect, he's complete, there's nothing that he's lacking. Uh, not only was Job righteous and blameless, but he was the wealthiest man in the region. He had everything. He had all the you know, as all of us aspire to, he had all the donkeys and all the camels and all the oxen and the sheep. I mean, he had everything. He had seven sons and three daughters. I mean, he had the perfect ancient Near Eastern family. There was no one else who was better than Job. This was the person that you wanted to be in that day and age. In fact, Job was such a righteous man that his sons would take turns hosting parties at their house, and they would invite all of their siblings, and they would come over, hang out, they would eat, and they would drink. And the next day, Job would make sure that they ritually washed, that they changed their clothes, and he would make sacrifices on their behalf just in case they might have possibly accidentally sinned against God in their hearts. And this is the kind of guy, a guy he was. And so if you're looking for anybody to be, uh, you know, have your life uh, modeled after, Job was the guy. Until verse 7. His life takes a little bit of a left turn here. And I want to kind of describe to you what the author is doing as he's talking here. Maybe a way that will help us to understand how this literary work of art is written is to think of it kind of like a play. And so we draw uh, the curtain across and we move to another scene and we find ourselves in God's heavenly throne room. And while God is holding court, angels are presenting themselves, and among them is the Satan. And uh, our last sermon series was on angels and demons, and we talked about the Satan then. And the Satan comes along, and he is performing his function as the adversary or the accuser. And so the following conversation takes place. In Job chapter 1, starting in verse 7, The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on him. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence 
of the Lord. Now, Job, you know, this is a different scene in the play. So Job doesn't know about this conversation that's happening in heaven, but I know if he was there and hearing what's going on, he'd say, hey, God, hold, hold on, hold on a second. As soon as God says, have you considered my sermon, Job? He's thinking, this is not the kind of recognition or attention I want for my life. This is how Job would respond. Satan is accusing Job. Remember, he's the adversary, the accuser. He's opposing. Satan is accusing Job of, uh, Job, I did it. I cannot believe I did it. Didn't do it at first service at all. All right, Satan is accusing Job of only being faithful because God has given him good things. And so, of course, as a result, Job believes in and trusts in God, and trusts in God because Job is living his best life now. And it would seem like God is being antagonistic with Satan to draw attention to Job and kind of have this contest at Job's expense. You know, hey, Satan, wouldn't it be fun? You know, this is not how it went, right? But sometimes this is how we read it. God says, hey, Satan, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't it be fun just to see what Job's breaking point is? I mean, you know, these human beings, let's just see how much they can take. And so there's going to be kind of this, you know, cosmic battle of tug and war where Job is, is the rope. And, and let's just see what, what happens and who wins. But I, I believe, and I think a lot of times it's kind of cursory look, this is how we look at the text, but I believe it, it would be a mistake to read the text exactly like this. As wisdom literature, this conversation between God and Satan is representing and using, being used to set up the question or the questions that the book of Job is meant to deal with. This, this frames the question, why do good people suffer in a little slightly uh, different way and, and instead of asking, why do good people suffer, Satan is saying, why do people experience good? Like, is this because Job has earned it? Is, is this, like, why do people still worship God in the face? Is it just because God's given them good things, and so it's kind of a trade relationship? You give me this, I'll give you this kind of thing. This is not about Satan and God being in direct opposition. Satan doesn't have that kind of level of authority or power. This is between God and humanity, and whether or not God is only worth worshiping if our lives are perfect, maybe even in spite of ourselves. And so God allows Job to lose everything. He loses all the oxen, the donkeys, the sheep, the camels, all of his servants, except for a few, and all of his children die from either attacks from enemies or natural disasters. Job has lost all of his possessions, all of his, all of his people, and this is his reaction to the news. Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. At this, after he'd heard uh, about all of this loss, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now I want to tell you, just moment of honesty, the, the part of this that makes sense to me is the first sentence. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Stop. Like, okay, I, I get that. That part I understand. In the midst of extreme loss and suffering and pain, I, I get the idea of uh, we're going to mourn and grieve and we're going we're gonna to be stuck in this place of pain. And yet Job doesn't stay there. And that's a little bit harder for me to grasp at times. I just... Just be honest, again, like my first reaction to grief and suffering is not worship most of the time. 
But there's something going on different with Job and how he's viewing his life, how he's view- viewing the character and nature of God and his relationship that he's communicating on this, in this statement of birth and death and this giving and taking that gives us his reason for turning to worship in the face of losing everything. And I want you to, to kind of lean in with me uh, and, and, and kind of hang with me uh, for this as Job is using this to communicate what he's feeling and why his response is worship. The loss of people and possessions in our life, that loss is felt so viscerally for us because these are the things that we clothe ourselves with in life. We wrap our identities in our relationships, the people that we have, our families, our homes, our jobs, the things that we've earned, the things that we've bought. These are the things that help to shape our existence, our experience as human beings. And these are layers that kind of build up over time. And when one or more of those things are ripped away from us, it's a, it's a painful experience. It creates sorrow. It creates a feeling of loss and disappointment when those things happen. However, what Job is doing here is he's starting with the foundation of acknowledging a holy and righteous God. And by acknowledging that he, Job, doesn't own anything, that he didn't bring anything into this world, that he can't take anything back out of it with him, he gives glory to God as sovereign over his life. He's able to say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away because Job's possessions were never his to begin with. Carol Newsom writes in her book, The Book of Job, In the image of the mother's womb, it is not the abyss, but something experienced as protective and loving that frames existence, even in loss, even in death. If it were not so, one could not endure the burden of the gift that cannot be possessed, but must inevitably be relinquished. One could not bear to be human. As the foundation for existence, then, God enables us to live, to experience life, to experience our own humanity, and Job is acknowledging that truth in the face of losing what was ultimately not his to begin with. The pain and the suffering that you are feeling now or that you will feel at some point in the future are temporary, but it doesn't have to define and it doesn't have to clothe your life. In the initial pain of loss and exposure, God can be praised, he can be worshipped in the face of that loss because he provided what was good to begin with. Otherwise, our response is to wish we'd never experienced the goodness of that loved one who's died to begin with. Or we wish we never had the feeling of a great job. And instead, clothe ourselves with the suffering instead of the goodness that God has provided, even on the side of heaven. Job doesn't miss the mark here. He doesn't sin because he didn't blame God for his own lack of ownership now for those people and possessions in his life. And so in this way, Satan's accusations have now been undercut, proved unfounded. Job doesn't give God the glory only because God gave him people and possessions. Job worships God because he is creator, because he is God. And that is enough for him to worship him. However, Satan, the adversary, tries again. And there's a similar conversation between the adversary and God as the curtain is drawn open for the next next metaphysical scene of the play. And so Job chapter 2, 
verse 3, the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And Job says, Come on! <laughs> Not again! This is, this is enough. God says, There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. And so Job is uh, afflicted with a very debilitating form of leprosy. He's taking a broken piece of pottery to scrape his skin for relief. And he finds himself sitting on the edge of town in the town uh, burn pile ash heap, isolated and separated from his family and the place that he lives in his home. So not only has Job lost all the people and possessions in his life, now he's, he's lost everything that makes him a person. Like any ability to be in relationship with others, as someone who has leprosy, they have to be quarantined, they have to stay. This is, uh, this is what was done. They were quarantined. They had to stay away from everybody. So everything that seemed to make you know, Job's life worth living has taken from him. And Job's wife, finally we had this moment of, of deep honesty, representing the honest character, wondering what everyone else is thinking, says this to Job in verse 9, chapter 2. She says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And what Job's wife is doing is she's representing this question, of, hey, if, if everything is boiled down to you have your life or, or you have God, which one are you going to choose? Because that's what Job is confronted with in, in this moment, in his deep suffering physically and death is looming in front of him in the midst of this experience. And Job's got to decide which is more important. Is it my life or God? This is what he's dealing with. There is nothing left in his life. I mean, as far as he knows, Job and his wife, they're, I mean, she's lost everything too. They're not in heaven. They don't know what this conversation is that's going on between God and the adversary. And so Job's wife asks the exposing and honest question. If God allows everything to be taken away from us, is he worth being worshipped? Is life even worth living? And Job says in verse 10, you're talking like a foolish woman. And when he says this, what he's saying is you're talking like someone who's lost faith, which makes sense. Like it's, uh, we can understand where Job's wife is coming from. It sounds like you've lost faith. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And so Job, in the face of this feeling of isolation and deep disappointment from God that we often feel when we suffer without reasons we, we know or, or can understand, still reinforces his earlier statement in Job chapter 1 that he's still going to praise God in the face of this. And maybe this is, like, this is one of those things that uh, sometimes I think when we face suffering we have these unanswered uh, questions or maybe even unasked questions that we deal with internally that we don't let out. And um, there's a great book called uh, Disappointed with God, Disappointment with God, and it's written by Philip Yancey. And it's not just because he has a fantastic last name, <laughs> but if you have ever dealt with suffering and, and wrestled with these questions with God, like, why is this going on in my life? You've ever been disappointed with God or know someone who has, then read this book. I think you can get it for eight bucks on, uh, on your Kindle or something like that. Um, that's where I, where I got it. 
and uh, it's very worth reading. He deals with these three questions that people often silently wrestle with in the midst of their suffering. Is God unfair? Is God silent? Is God hidden? Like, what is it about the character and nature of God that allows suffering to exist in this world? And all of this is represented in Job's faith being questioned. And yet Job acknowledges that even in a world broken by our sin, and even our own propensity to cause ourselves and other people to suffer, God still provides goodness. And so maybe the question isn't so much why do good people suffer, and maybe even the question isn't so much why do people experience good to begin with, like maybe one of the questions we should ask is why isn't there only suffering? Like, are we really owed anything more than that? Because God still provides and shares goodness with and through us in spite of ourselves. And the more we recognize the reality that we live in a world that's been broken by sin, by our sin, and that as a result, just the reality is we, we will all be exposed to suffering at some point in our lives. When we, when we understand that, the more willing then we'll be to risk suffering for the sake of relationship and for the sake of vulnerability and for the sake of experiencing life, and then the more fully we'll, we will have lived. See, Job chooses life based on the goodness of God, based on the holiness, based on the righteousness, based on the glory of God, not on the good that he had received from God. And so over the coming weeks, we'll see how he and his friends and Job and his conversation with God wrestles with that decision. And I want to encourage you to read alongside as we go through this series, go through the book of Job. If you read two chapters a day, Monday through Friday, over the next four weeks, you'll have read through the entire book. And Because the reason this is so important is Job teaches us how to lose everything and yet still hold on to a life worth living. Because that's the reality of our human existence. So we didn't bring anything in, we're not taking anything out, and yet God still offers us a life that's worth living. That's one of the things that drives us as a community, as a church, as a congregation, is that we want to be a group of people, a congregation of people who are living a life worth living together. It's why we say things and why we have rules on our sign out front that say no perfect people allowed, no one stands alone, everyone's story matters. Like, the only way those things are true is if we are willing to enter into those moments of pain and suffering and loss with each other. To make those things true for, for you and for me, we have to do that, those things for each other. We have to make ourselves accessible. We have to open ourselves up in vulnerability to experience that life with each other so that we can be encouraged in the face of that. And so our reaction, our initial reaction to our pain and suffering is not um, is not giving up everything, but is in worship and praise to God. That's the type of community that we're trying to be, and it's even, it's even the thing that's modeled to us from God. One of the reasons every week at Velocity that we celebrate communion together is that God doesn't just pontificate about this. God experiences it himself by sending himself in Jesus to live just as we have, to experience life just as we have, to experience suffering and pain and loss and grief just as we have, and yet to be the sacrifice for us to be able to look forward to something beyond that pain and suffering. That's what he does. He allows us to be redeemed and reconciled to God, to be able to experience God's goodness even on this side of heaven. 
In Luke chapter uh, 22, I just want to read this as we, as we start to turn our minds and our thoughts and our hearts to communion. Uh, as Jesus is preparing to be crucified, he withdraws from his disciples um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, about a stone's throw beyond them, kneels down and prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was suffering deeply in this moment. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. In verse 44, and even after all of that, still being in anguish, Jesus prays more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I mean, one of the great uniquenesses of Christianity in this faith, unlike any, any other faith that exists, is that God does not sit back and say, all right, <laughs> let's do your best to try to get to me. Now, he comes down to us. He experiences everything uh, that that we've experienced and he provides for us a relationship with the creator who gives all good things. And so I just ask that you uh, turn your hearts and your thoughts and your minds to that as we share in communion together. Let me pray for us. God, we, uh, we thank you for um, just this moment that we have uh, that we can come together and um, worship you uh, to be reminded of who you are, your nature and your character and God, over these next four weeks, I just ask that you um, uh, give us uh, the spirit and the mind and heart of, of Jesus as we deal with um, not only the pain and suffering in our own lives, but in the lives of those that we have relationships with. And um, we thank you for this time of remembering Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.